the thing that I will take credit for is we brought together a group of brilliant defense attorneys, the smartest attorneys I could find. And we sat in a room together and we concocted an expungement process, which does not currently exist to this day. If you have ever committed a misdemeanor or a felony, there is no such structure and statute for expungement. It just follows you for the rest of your life. And while we're working on a legislative solution to expand expungement to all crimes, at least through Prop 207, we were able to draft language that is now the law that says that you can have your record sealed and no one but you can touch it. And that is going to help so many people get their voting rights back. It's going to help so many people end the cycle of discrimination in housing and employment. And again, this is for simple possession of under two ounces of marijuana. Welcome to The Idealists. My name is Melissa Kigua, and I'm spanning the globe, interviewing the world's most high-achieving women to learn how they think about the world and their place in it. These women are charting their own path, and on the show, they share their hard-earned and hard-won wisdom gained along the way. On today's episode, I interview Marilyn Rodriguez, the go-to policy and politics advisor in Arizona. One of the foremost government relations professionals in the state, Marilyn founded and runs the lobbying firm Creosote Partners, which represents progressive organizations in front of local, legislative, statewide, and federal lawmakers. Outside of the legislative session, Marilyn teaches a course on lobbying at Arizona State University. In this episode, she describes the hard collective work involved in turning Arizona blue and the ways her firm is fighting to keep the state blue. Make sure to share this with someone who needs some inspiration and make sure to give us a rating and review. Enjoy. I definitely know that it is odd that I place people ahead of profit. So odd, in fact, that even my business partners who share this viewpoint, I've noticed, even feel uncomfortable because they're trying to balance you know, feminism and equity and equality across salary. And while I think it is absolutely no question that, you know, I, I founded this business, I've put the most into it thus far, my insistence that everyone be paid the same is, I think, pretty shocking to folks outside of our firm. And in, even within the movement of progressive politics, I work in progressive spaces. But even that is super radical. And, you know, the whole point in my mind is I don't care what job you're doing. If you're contributing to the overall outputs, the overall success of the organization, then your job, your function is just as important as mine. And so that means slower growth. But I do think it requires us to be more thoughtful about the sustainability of every position. So break this down for me when you say everyone gets paid the same. So is it as simple as what you've just said, meaning the executive assistant gets paid the same thing as the partners? What, what does this mean? Yes. So all the partners get paid the exact same. And then we start, we're pretty small <laughs> as a result, but we start our lower staff at a much higher position and work them up. We 
ratchet them up to where we are too over the course of just a few years through training and direct communication about you know, what to expect about raises. And even though we're new, even though we work in an area that can be quite unpredictable, even though we're still growing and we're still kind of learning where we fit in the world, my highest priority is making sure that everybody at the firm understands that I value their work as much as my own. And I don't think that they're any more or less important than me, you know, and, and by, by me, I mean, the primary source of income for the organization, usually related to business referrals and bringing in clients. But I wouldn't be able to do that if folks on my team weren't picking up the slack in other areas. And again, I, I know that it means we grow a little bit more slowly, but I think we see a more permanent team who's more invested in the overall goal of the organization, who's more committed right, to everything we're trying to do. I want to come back to this because I have a few questions on just how you how you think it through and what does that growth look like for you. But let's backtrack a little bit to even understand what you're doing with your firm. So can you give us a little bit of, you know, when did you start this and why did you start this? Oh, goodness. Yeah. So back in 2017, I as a progressive was having, I think, what is what I know now to be a very familiar crisis of conscience, where, you know, we took a look around myself. And, you know, after the 2016 presidential election, really started facing the hard truth that I'm just not making the impact in the world around me that I absolutely critically feel like is needed. And I also realized I was in a position that many were do not have the privilege of being in, where I had the space and the ability to quit a very wonderful job doing lobbying on behalf of corporations at a bipartisan firm that, you know, to this day, I you know, I look I look to them as one of the most successful firms in the state of Arizona, but they just they weren't and nobody else really was pursuing the work that I really think is critical needed to critically needed to actually impact everyday people, right? So whether it's solving poverty, which is it has many symptoms, whether that be homelessness, food scarcity, you name it. It even goes all the way to incarceration and criminal justice. I really didn't see anybody focusing on providing lobbying tools and services to the people and organizations we all know are on the ground working really hard to solve these problems. I didn't see anybody in Arizona taking that baton in that long relay race of, you know, individual donor gives to progressive organization, has a mission to address, let's say, climate change, works internally to educate the community, come up with policy solutions and recommendations. But then where do those go? And what I saw in Arizona is they fell short because these organizations, despite having brilliant people at the helm and brilliant people on staff, didn't have the tool they needed to take it that much further at the Arizona State Legislature to say, hey, elected official who we probably helped get elected <laughs> as an organization, here are some policies that we believe will actually help everyday Arizonans. And we're going to hold you accountable to making those become the law or like, you know, part of what we do day to day. And so Creosote was born 
2017, I quit my job. I had very, I had a plan to start a business. I did not have any clients on deck. I did not have much in the bank account as far as savings. But what I did have is this instinct that there was this critical need that wasn't being filled. And I was so sick of waiting for someone else to do it and finally came to the realization that if I wanted it done, it had to be me. So fast forward to you know today, we have a team of now four full-time people and two part-time people where we exclusively work with organizations that are pursuing progressive solutions to everyday problems, right? We think of these problems as in the public interest. So we have clients ranging from wanting to do actions on climate justice, wanting to solve the water crisis, wanting to make sure that we have accessible and free for all, regardless of status, education to everyone in Arizona, including higher ed. Uh, We have clients who want to stop jailing individuals for injecting drugs and drug use. And just in general, we have clients who want to abolish the prison system altogether, all the way over to economic justice issues related to, you know, poverty, homelessness, and the like. So we are by no means the solution to all of these problems. I'm not sitting here trying to argue that we are, but we absolutely are one of the only, if not still the only, place you can go in Arizona where you can take all of these incredible this this incredible infrastructure that you've built and we can help you and we have found a very successful niche in helping you plug that into the very old school infrastructure of the Arizona state legislature we can help you navigate that we can help you determine where disruption is needed we can help you figure out how to get things in front of people who make real decisions and you know, we started this business in 2017, so it's only been a couple of years, but I've already really started to see a big impact in the work that we do. And that has made me very proud and very motivated to do this for as long as anybody will allow me to do it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. I mean, I have so many questions. They range between wanting to know about the personal journey and jump between leaving your job to starting your job and talking about some of those growing pains. But I think first, I sort of want to ground into more of the work that your firm does. You mentioned something very important, which is, you know, I think Arizona has always sort of been understood as being a red state, proudly so. This year in particular, we sort of saw it turn blue. And I think a lot of that has to do with the work your firm has done. And you and I have had conversations about this before, what it means for those kind of purple states who have the ability to transition over in a very surprising way, I think, for the rest of the country. So can we talk about that a little bit? How you think about strategizing between having a state that is really <laughs> well known for its conservative values and being on the forefront of trying to push it blue and what that looks like in terms of working with the organizations that you support. Yeah, I hear this a lot that Arizona's red. I mean, I will take a step back and be the first to say that, you know, I am a fifth generation Arizona and I, I grew up here, my family grew up here for generations. The Arizona that I know, I think is not even close to the Arizona people outside of this state have come to know. I really understand deeply that our politics do not reflect our people. And that is largely because of these structures set up by the conservative, quote unquote, majority 
to keep people out. Digging into that a little bit deeper, I think it's important to understand how these structures are set up to hoard power, to hoard wealth, and to you know put up these arbitrary systems that you of hoops of fire almost that other folks have to jump through just to get a piece of the pie. And you're supposed to respect those systems because they are, you know, the institutions in place, right? You're supposed to abide by those systems because that's what we've been doing. That's that's how things are done. Can you break down what those hoops of fire are? Right. So for instance, registering to vote, the very simple act of registering to vote. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that you don't have a constitutional right to vote in Arizona. A lot of people reference this right to vote and I, it's head spinning because it's, it's really kind of obscuring the, the, the root of the problem, which is that you do not have a right to vote. Your voting rights can be stripped from you at any point, especially for anybody who is interfaced with law enforcement. You understand this personally. But if you go and you look at the Arizona Constitution, it does not delineate your rights to vote. It delineates the reasons why you can be denied the ability to vote. And the folks in power understand this and will use it to ensure that the folks who are voting for them are benefited in society and the folks who are not are not benefited. I know that is a really simplistic breakdown of what is going on, but it is the truth. Right. It is it explains why the folks who serve in our state legislature, the folks who serve in these centers of power, like the governor's office, the attorney general's office and the like, they're all very wealthy, majority white, majority men, and very, very interested in making sure that they maintain their hold on power. So what what that looks like, these rings of fire that I'm talking about, if you wanted to go to the legislature to request to speak and say something publicly about your feelings about a bill. Let's say one of the bills we saw this year that would have required triplicate additional ID for your mail-in voting ballot. You would have had to, 24 hours in advance, request the ability to address a committee. You would have had to know that the bill was coming up. You would have been given, if you're lucky, maybe five days notice, but more, more often you're given 24 hours to 48 hours notice. And you are not given any sense of when you'll have the opportunity to speak or you know, specifically address the problems that you're trying to address in front of these elected representatives. So you could be waiting for hours and normally will be waiting for hours, sometimes until two o'clock in the morning or later to address the committee. At that point too, the committee chair will very likely have imposed rules along the lines of you may not get to speak, or if you do get to speak, you get 30 seconds, <laughs> which I just laugh at because it's just so, it's just such a shame. These committee processes, these public hearings, these processes, these members, especially those in the majority and the conservative majority, are, they already know how they're going to vote when they show up to committee. There is very little you, person from the public, can say at that point to push them in either direction. No, I'm saying that I'm not saying that that's impossible. I'm just saying it's not the norm. It's it's really the exception to the norm. So it gets to this place and I think it's designed to make you cynical. I think it's designed to make you feel like you have no power. And I think it's designed to make it as confusing and inaccessible as possible so that you really don't get a say 
in how your tax dollars are spent, how policies are passed, right? And so we end up with things like no masks in schools during the third wave of a COVID pandemic. We end up with things like the eviction moratorium ending and the governor sitting on billions of dollars in aid that he could use right now to help people stay in their homes, but he won't. And these are the structures I'm talking about, where unless something benefits their own, and it's usually the elite, the wealthy, there is no motivation and really very few ways that you can push them, that you can pressure them to do anything that benefits someone outside of the privileged and wealthy elite. And the, this is why every other year when it comes time to show up for your primary and general election, we're so vocal about getting out and voting and being educated and understanding, you know, who are these people on the ballot? What impact have they had on my life? And do I want them to continue serving in this capacity? There are so many organizations in Arizona that are busting their butts trying to get information to the everyday voter to help them make that decision, right? But we know how challenging life is too, right? Like we, we live in a society where it is very common to have several jobs, where it's very common to struggle paycheck to paycheck, where it's very common to not have any time at the end of the day to even have the energy to take a moment to educate yourselves about these folks. And that too is a structure steeped in inequality. And the point is to keep you starving. It is to keep you busy. It is to keep you in a place where you feel like you have no power. And all of this contributes to the structure that only continues to dig in deeper to these inequalities. And so Creosote is really there to help organizations who have the ability to disrupt that as much as possible. And I'm hoping, you know, 10 years from now, we're not going to be the only ones here doing this, that we'll have so many other creosotes here, you know, alongside us, helping organizations to make those connections to hold lawmakers accountable to actually helping the people. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. There's two sorts of things I've heard in what you've said, sort of two pronged, right? Which is if Legislators don't represent the individuals that they're serving. On the one hand, there could be a movement to say, why don't we have new sorts of legislators in? And that's full-time work in and of itself, just trying to change the faces of the legislature. And then the second sort of thing is what you've been describing, which is how do you get those people who are already in these positions to sort of understand the ramifications of the bills that they are passing on different types of communities and to understand that there are different paradigms and perspectives, as you mentioned before, to go towards even you know abolishing the prison system in and of itself, which is quite radical. So tell me how you think, how you're thinking between these two different things, between changing the face of these individuals in and of itself and also working within the system already there to sort of see if if different types of bills can be enacted or amendments can be enacted or bills can be thrown out that are just incredibly problematic. One word that comes to mind that really binds us all together is the word incentives. Politicians, lawmakers are products of their incentives, right? They they vote, they behave in whatever manner they feel will benefit them. 
right? So then if we turn that around and think about how we as everyday people incentivize behaviors, you know, what does that mean? That means voting and voting often. It is very likely the case that if you live in Arizona, you probably have the ability to weigh in on an election at least annually, if not every other year. And every other year, there are several, not just one, but several elections in place where you can have the ability to influence the outcome and the incentives that drive the missions of these individuals, right? You also have some folks listening might also have the ability to give financially, you know, to causes. Consider giving financially. I know how weird this sounds, but consider giving financially to the elected officials that pursue the agendas you agree with. Support them. Send them a check. <laughs> yes. Or more often they have a they have an email link on their campaign website. But often, you know, especially those that pursue progressive reforms, they find that they have very little support by way of financial contributions because they're, you know, the current structure that is set up, it's very quote unquote traditional, but corporations, right, special interests on the right, they don't want these people to stick around. They want them to struggle to get elected. And I think the really cynical view of that is, you know, if we're leaving these elected officials to kind of have to cobble together whatever they can to remain successful in their pursuit of elected office to help us, to help you know everyday people. Eventually, it's not going to be enough. And eventually, my fear is, and I've seen this happen not often, but enough to know that it's a real phenomenon, they'll start turning to those corporate donors. And you'll notice over time, they'll start being more receptive to them than they are the people. Because it's a virtuous cycle, right? Like, oh, if I vote for this special handout, I am very likely going to get more support in my upcoming re-election campaign. And so this is, it's so simple, but it's so insidious, right? We, we have to remain vigilant. We have to remain supportive of the people in our community who are brave enough to run for office, to fight for us. And we have to remember that they're paid $24,000 a year for what is a full-time job. And they very likely have a second job and are struggling to get by just like everyone else. And if we continue to let this system exist in this way, I think, again, it's another example of how the elite are benefited because they're not struggling paycheck to paycheck. In fact, if any of the elected officials that I'm talking about happen to be part of the 1% happen to be very privileged, right? They're, they think of their service in the legislature as one, a benefit to them, but also kind of like a hobby, right? And I think when we pay that low, when we set up structures of no support, we are literally incentivizing those people to take those positions of power. So the other ask I have of people is in addition to voting, in addition to supporting the candidates that will help people run for office, you are capable of running for office. You can do it. I promise. In the January to May time of the year, the Arizona State Legislature meets and you Monday through Thursday can at any point sign on to www.azledge.gov around lunchtime to watch them speak on the floor and do business. I promise if you just tune in once, you will see what I see. And you'll notice that these individuals are not rocket scientists. Some of them are insurrectionists. 
some of them are bigots, some of them are very openly, not only hateful, but incredibly uneducated. And these are the folks driving our decisions. I think if you can see the representation of the individuals that we just somehow allow to have power, I think the more we get that in front of people, the more I think people will be motivated to say, you know what, I can do this. I am I am smart. I'm capable of understanding a process through which a bill can go from idea to law. But more importantly, I don't want that guy <laughs> making decisions for me anymore. And I think just that, those very small actions of paying attention, of voting, of giving where you can, and then you know the more extreme action of running for office and serving the community if you can, these are the only things that are going to change outcomes for people. And kind of, I'm kind of urging your listeners to learn the same lesson I did, which is we have to stop waiting for somebody to just jump in and do the work. If we have the ability to do it, we should be doing it. Right. I'm curious, coming back to this 24,000 a year, what I imagine when I hear you say that is that one of two things is happening. One, individuals who are able to keep running for office and keep getting the salary definitely have other streams of income coming in elsewhere if they're comfortable and, and this is what they do. And then if individuals are coming in from communities or families that don't necessarily have generational wealth, or they don't necessarily have investments, or they don't have other businesses or evergreen income coming in, then they sort of get cycled out because they have to they have to do other things. As you mentioned before, session can be really intense. You're up till two, sometimes four, six in the morning, just grinding it out. So tell me what you've seen about individuals who have tried to get in to make the change and who, because of their own personal financial situations have had to leave for other opportunities. Yeah, that's, I couldn't have said it better myself. That happens every cycle. So every two years, all 90 seats, so 60 in the House and 30 in the Senate are up for re-election every two years. And every two years, the folks who honestly are, are paying out of pocket to serve in this capacity as an elected official at the state legislative level, they have to make this choice. Like, will I continue to serve in this capacity, you know, pursue my civic duty of, of, of serving the people and trying to push for better outcomes? Will, you know, will I do it two more years? And I, I think that question only gets more difficult over time, especially as you are not just facing the $24,000 a year problem, but the increasing partisanship of the state level politics, and it is largely driven by a conservative majority that to this day, and I am not being hyperbolic when I say this, is singularly focused on finishing the coup that President Trump started on January 6th, uh, 2021. And that is so demoralizing. <laughs> it's so challenging. Because when you're confronted with that, when you're confronted with these ideologues, these, these people who are completely out of their mind, who you know, have elected office and are willing to use that elected office to do whatever they can to override the election results or make next uh, election cycle as impossible as ever to, you know, to even conduct an election, 
it's demoralizing. You really do take a look at the mental health impact, the psychological and physical impacts just generally. And I can't, I can't discredit anyone for saying, you know what, I don't have it in me. It's too hard. And in addition to the demoralizing aspect, you're seeing more and more death threats and threats of violence against elected officials, especially those that do stand up for democracy. Again, I am not being hyperbolic. Simply Google this, simply Google AZ Central or the Arizona Capital Times, and you will find several examples, several, several examples this year alone of threats of violence against elected officials who stood up for democracy, who said President Biden won this election in a free and fair democracy. And I don't think this problem is one that is just going to go away anytime soon. I think we're looking at the next generation of Republican politics and asking somebody for $24,000 a year with no support to serve in that role, to confront them every day for hours on end. It's a lot to ask. And I, I think we all have a responsibility to ask ourselves, are we willing to do this? And if we're not, are there folks in our community or folks, you know, one degree of separation or two degrees of separation away from our community who we can support and lift up to go and do that really difficult job of fighting for us? Yeah. So taking a step back a little bit, you've mentioned it a little bit before, but when you started in 2017, thinking about what this firm could be and where you could implement the most impact. How has what you thought in 2017 changed, if it has at all, in terms of recognizing how much work there is to be done and strategizing how you sort of tackle some of these issues? Yeah, I'm still in the same place. I was under no illusions. I had been doing this goodness, almost seven years on the corporate side before I decided to jump you know, and, and start my own firm to work on the things I really cared about, the things that got me out of bed every day. And largely, this is so frustrating. And I, you know, I'm working to change this, but I, I knew about it, you know, going in with very open eyes, which is that there's this culture at the legislature that is very inaccessible, right? If you weren't dressed in a very well-fitted, nice suit, if you haven't taken people out for steak dinner or cocktails at Durant's, right, you are going to be looked at as an outsider by these very elected officials, some of which you may have voted for. You're going to be looked at as an outsider and treated less seriously than a career, mostly cis white male lobbyist. You just aren't going to be taken as seriously. And then say you even, you know, can get past those obstacles, which I would say I have, I, I joke, like I, the days that I go to the legislature, the days that I put on heels and do my hair, and I think of them as weapons and tools, <laughs> more so than anything else, you know, and then once you're in those spaces, once you're in that room, there's a code of conduct, and it's respectability politics through and through. And it's not conducive to having the conversations that really ought to be had, that really need to be had, in order to confront all of these deep, deep, long-standing problems that are contributing to people feeling like they're surviving instead of thriving. And so we have, since the start, worked with organizations 
to really understand respectability politics, you know, gender, class, all of this. And so I think helping together with our clients to understand just how steeped in white supremacy this institution is and how when you interrupt someone in a meeting at the Capitol, you are breaking the norm. And if you do that, you have to do it strategically. I'm never, if we decide to work together, because of all of our client relationships or partnerships at the end of the day, if we decide to work together, I'm never going to tell you what to say or how to say it. I am going to give you the roadmap of landmines based on what I think you're going to say and how I think you're going to say it. And I'm going to try to confront you with the very real reactions you are likely to get from these individuals who, by and large, are not used to being questioned or confronted, even lightly or gently, and definitely are not shy about using their power to shut you down. One great example I have of this is one of my colleagues, his first month of working with us, I gave him the, goodness, I I feel a little bit bad that it ended up working out really well, but I gave him the really difficult job of going in front of this career politician. He was the, this politician was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee and has a long history of gaveling you down. So he shuts you up by hitting the gavel. When you say anything outside of what I would consider the respectability politics box. So essentially, you can't be honest about anything. There was a bill two years ago that would have put into the Constitution some of the very same provisions that we have won in court to to strike down that were passed by 2010's very racist SB 1070. And so my request of my colleague was, you're going to go in, you know, you, you, you're going to go and speak on behalf of our client in this committee, and you're going to be very respectful. This is the plan. But the second that you say the word racist, expect him to interrupt you. He will gavel you down. And that exact thing happened. Even though we know it's going to happen, it's so demoralizing because what just happened in that moment is this chairman who's letting this bill go through that is going to hurt so many people is being confronted by a very polite man of color who just simply said, this is going to have a racist impact to disproportionately impact communities of color. And so instead of engaging in a constructive conversation, what happened instead is law enforcement removed every person of color from the room. Wow. That happened two years ago. Wow. So I, I, I'm not kidding when I tell you how much further we have to go here, but I by no means am confronting this with my eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious now about this intersection between how you think through your business model and the work that has to be done, right? Because there's two things you're sort of doing here. On the one hand, you are implementing your own paradigm into the business that you have and the way that you believe businesses should be run. And at the same time, you are confronting really old money, old ideas, old paradigms, archaic way 
of, of looking at the world and looking at the ways, you know, politicians may be able to play a little bit, you know, and use politics as their playground. So are there ways in which you feel like, and I, I'm always curious about this when it comes to women who are really using radical sort of, and I should, I should not use the word radical, but just, you know, non-mainstream ideas of building a corporation. For example, you're ratcheting up all your employees to be able to be paid the same as you within a few years, you know, that sort of model. Are there constraints to what you're able to do compared to others who sort of aren't thinking so consciously, you know, I guess basically the most simplified version of my question is, are there sacrifices to being conscious? I think anybody who is in a position of every day being as conscious as possible, who has the privilege of showing up in this capacity would tell you that, yes, there are sacrifices. Uh, And I don't think of them necessarily in that context, but they absolutely are. Right. I have skills that if I took them to a corporate venue, I would be making exponentially more money than I am making. But I, I don't know if this is a millennial mentality or just us finally breaking down this notion that you work to live. But I, money isn't everything to me. It doesn't have to be everything to me. I don't want to pass any judgment on anyone who has to take a job for money to survive. I, that is how our structure, our society is set up. That's one of the problems. But I had the privilege and the ability to take a lower salary, to do this work, to grow a business. And I'm not going to say that you know, we're, we aren't making money. We are a for-profit business. But since the beginning, all of those profits have, already go, have always gone back into growing the business in a way where we can make a bigger impact. So I'm not in this for the money. And I don't think that's the case for anybody working with me. And I think that's really, that's really unfortunate because this work is so taxing. And anybody in the movement, anybody who decides to show up, even the elected officials who opt to make $24,000, I, I wish that it was the case that they had the ability to have a living wage across the board. Fortunately, at Creosote, we've been able to provide that, but it has meant you know, staying small. It has meant having to work on things perhaps like I haven't had wanted to work on administratively because that's just what it takes you know, to run the business. But it has never meant taking on the issues that we don't want to take on. And so am I giving up a bigger salary? Yes. Are my partners? Yes. But what we're gaining is the ability to do something we love and do something we know will be impactful each and every day. And you would ask, you know, what's the, what are the limitations of that? And I think one is we have to be very patient. I'm already resolved to the fact that a lot of what we want to see come to fruition is not going to happen in my lifetime. And that's okay. So the impact that I can make is wherever possible, we have a very robust internship program for this reason. Every legislative session, we bring in four interns to work with us day in and day out to really expose them to these structures of government that impact them, impact their families, impact the issues they care about. And the goal, and I think it's working so far, is to just take what has been so invisible, right? That state level, level politics, the majority of people you meet on the street 
They don't even know we have a state legislature. They think you're talking about D.C. if you bring up politics at the state level. Just that very basic step of educating people, I think, is the most important thing we do. And then the second most important thing we do, I think, is by providing representation. By starting Creosote Partners, we did something that just in hindsight really seems so silly that it was so it was seen as so radical. But in 2017, when I launched Creosote Partners, it was seen as totally bananas. We got on the front page of the paper, several folks within the lobbying community, lobbyists who I will just take an aside to say, like, it is not the norm to be quoted in on the record. <laughs> several on the record interviews with lobbyists from conservative spaces saying they're crazy, like this is never going to work. Because again, you know, they're steeped in this infrastructure that for so long, even through uh, political reporting, has told us that Arizona is just this hostile place. It's this very conservative place. When in fact, what we should be saying, and what is the God honest truth, is that Arizona's political institutions are hostile to the people of Arizona and are deeply conservative because they are set up to function in that way and have, and nobody there today is willing to, except for you know a few and far between folks, I don't want to give nobody credit because there are definitely folks who have, who have tried and there are folks who have succeeded, but it's very rare to show up and to say, I am going to think of and provide an alternative that is not this. And so when that happens, people just lose their minds, right? Because like, there's no way, there's just no way that folks can come to the legislature and ask elected officials for things as radical as a living wage, as medical leave for teachers or just any government employee, because we don't currently have a maternity leave policy for any state government public employee. Right. These are these are things that when you say them out loud and you say them back to yourself, it's absurd. And these again, this is this is how these structures work. They they are put in place to, I think, give credibility to these totally inhumane policies that only benefit the elite few who want you to think that that's how the world ought to be. And so I think us showing up you know, me and my heels with my hair blown out to say, we're going to use this tool of lobbying, this tool that is historically and for, you know, I want to say hundreds of years been used to benefit a very elite few. We're going to use it to actually benefit the people. And when you say that, and then when you see it in action, I think people really start to understand and believe in it. And I think that's the reason or the driver for the growth that we have seen at our firm and we have seen at the legislature. And I'm, I'm really grateful and honored and humbled to be doing this job. And really my hope is that more will see us doing this and decide to do it themselves. Yeah. So speaking to that, kind of give us your top, say, maybe three accomplishments that you've you know that your firm was really at the helm of creating or changing 
I would love to actually answer this question exactly how I think you meant it, but then I would like to talk about some internal structures too, because I think they're just as important. So very publicly, you know, one of the things that we were able to do quite immediately is for anybody who has matriculated through Arizona public schools, if you're in your 30s um, or older, you will remember that it was unlawful for teachers or really anybody from the school to talk about the LGBT community. And this included a very real example. My little sister 10 years ago uh, was being bullied for being gay in junior high. And it wasn't until two years ago, excuse me, three years ago, that we were able to finally repeal and strike down a law that said that it was a criminal act for her teachers to tell her that there was nothing wrong with her. It's called Arizona's quote unquote, no promo homo law. It's bigoted. It's disgusting. It's a shame. It's absolutely shameful that it was the law until three years ago. There's already remnants of it coming back after this legislative session where our elected officials told our public employees, our teachers, that if you tell a kid who's in crisis, that there is nothing wrong with them for being gay. You were facing not only being fired, but potential criminal charges. That is disgusting. And we, we were a big part of helping to repeal that. Beyond that, we've had landmark criminal justice reform victories, one of which being part of the coalition to pass legalized recreational marijuana. And I don't want to take credit for all of it because it is It was a big group of people that helped do this. But the thing that I will take credit for is we brought together a group of brilliant defense attorneys, folks from from organizations that work on civil liberties, the smartest attorneys I could find. And we sat in a room together and we concocted an expungement process, which does not currently exist. There are things that just blow my mind to this day about Arizona's laws. But to this day, if you have ever committed a misdemeanor or a felony, There is no such structure and statute for expungement. It just follows you for the rest of your life. And while we're working on a legislative solution to expand expungement to all crimes, at least through Prop 207, we were able to draft language that is now the law that says that you can have your record sealed and no one but you can touch it. And that is going to help so many people get their voting rights back. It's going to help so many people end the cycle of discrimination in housing and employment. And again, this is for simple possession of under two ounces of marijuana. So I'm hoping, and we're still working to expand that to other crimes. And goodness, the list is long, but another victory, and I I will use a defensive victory as an example, because so often we don't think of the things that we're able to stop, bills we're able to kill as victories, but they are. Every year since the passage of the new minimum wage, our elected officials, despite the popularity of that measure, despite the fact that it is now law, have tried to undermine it and have tried to say that the voters were wrong, they're idiots, you can't possibly expect people to expect a minimum wage. We, What are we thinking? Uh, again, not being hyperbolic, things they have said. <laughs> And every year since 2016, so this even started in our first year of of operations, in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021, 
we have thwarted and defeated every attempt at the state legislature to undermine what the voters passed, which was a minimum wage of $12 across the board. And we're fighting now to increase that. And I'm really proud of that. I think it's absolutely absurd that we don't pay people more. $12, in my opinion, sounds extremely low. I don't think that you can survive on that. And my hope is one day we get to a point where corporations, where the government is expected to take care of people and not functioning in the way we see it now, which is just giving handouts to the rich. And then internally, so I'm not blathering on forever, this work that we do, it, it has a lot of grief in it. And I, and I think that it's probably the case for a lot of people, no matter what they do, just given all of the societal inputs we have talked about this past hour. Self-care has become a real focus at our firm. And as somebody who owns a business who employs people, I want others to hear me who are in this position. You have to trust your people. I, I don't micromanage mental health days. We have a mental health stipend. We have you know, time off. If your use of your mental health stipend or your mental health day is to go play laser tag with your friends, I'm not saying anybody has done that, but if that's what it is, go do that. What's going to make you feel better? Is it taking your mom to lunch? Take your mom to lunch. I don't need to hear about that. I see you getting your work done. I see you struggling showing up for the people who work for us in the same ways that we expect them to show up for us has radically altered my view of the workplace. And it has required me to really let go of what I think of as the corporate boss CEO ego to take a step back and really let my employees decide for themselves what they need and not the other way around. I love that. I love that. I love that. Really powerful. So I would like to take a minute and just, you know, I always ask this question at the end of the podcast as well. And it is, what is your audacious vision for the future? And I think that we've heard lots of it as you've described what you're fighting for, why you fight on behalf of your clients and even on behalf of your employees and your partners. You know, if we take a minute, because I think that in the busyness of the world we live in, it's so rare to be able to just take a minute to just talk about what we're fighting for, what we imagine, what we hope the world can be due to collective efforts. So I'd love to just hear your version of the world you're trying to build, of what you of what you believe is possible, whether in your lifetime or not. What is it you're trying to do? Yeah. I want people, regardless of skin color or creed, to thrive. I want them to feel like they're thriving instead of surviving. That is going to be my focus for the rest of my life. So I just, like I said, I'm very humbled to be able to even say that I have the, the ability and the space and the time to do this. And I feel very, I feel a deep sense of responsibility because I have the space and the time to do this, that this is what I need to commit my life to. Thank you so much. Marilyn, for coming on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your work and your heart and your passion. I appreciate you. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, everyone. Love this episode? Make sure to subscribe and to rate us on Apple iTunes. Grit and Grace is sponsored by LSE, the London School of Economics Accelerator for Women Founders.